Uh, it's on page 1029. Paul speaks to the Ephesian elders. Now I'm from Matthias. He sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to them, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. How he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because of the words he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So we are t today in a two, uh, the second of a two-part series. Um, and uh, normally, you'll know that we go through books of the Bible here at Bayless. We finished up a series in the book of Psalms this summer, which we'll re pick up next summer. We're going to start back in the Gospel of Mark next week, but because of some really exciting things happening at our church, we decided to do a two-week series um, on the nature of the church, calling this series the Jesus-led church. And 
we, uh, and it's uh, really, we're trying to address how God has made his church to function in, as a body in action. But I, I have to confess that I think some of us, we're, we're not really all that certain that there's a right way to do church. After all, uh, we might have grown up in different denominational traditions. Um, I have friendly debates with my, my Presbyterian and Lutheran brothers all the time about certain right ways to do church. And there's books that are coming out all the time about how to make the church a more uh, strategic, uh, results-oriented, streamlined place. Is there really a way, a right way to do church? Well, I think that there's actually some things that God has made enormously clear about his church that every church is tempted to uh, overlook. And these uh, two, there's actually two questions in fact, that I want to answer over these, week, these two weeks that I think the Bible is enormously clear about. The first we addressed last week, which is, what does it mean to belong to a church? And the second is, what kind of leaders has God given to his church? What does it mean to belong to a church, and what kind of leaders has God given his church? Last week, if you're as forgetful as me, hopefully like, this reminder helps, but we um, saw that belonging to a church by God's design means far more than belonging to Costco. It means far more than belonging to uh, a country club or bearing some spiritual badge of honor or gaining access to some sort of re- rewards program around here. Belonging to a church, membership is about committing yourself long haul to not only Jesus Christ as your king, but to the people that he has given you, the family that he has given you to follow him with. And, and the mission that he has called all of us to join in. God has designed the local church, as we learned last week in, second, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, to work like a body, to be active, in fact, as Jesus's body, the way that he shows up and shows off in the world. Isn't that a remarkable thing that God has chosen to show off through, of all things, a broken and messy local church? And just like our physical bodies, there are no expendable organs. There's no, it's a, it does not um, match the nature of the church to compare one another about who's more useful and to fight battles in, along those lines. Local churches and the Christians within them are God's plan A to reach neighborhoods and nations with the gospel. Jesus hasn't even asked angels to do this. He's asked Christians, real Christians, members in local churches to build his church up, to make disciples of Jesus Christ, and to protect the gospel in their everyday lives. Problem is, I've seen many people who have tried to hand these kind of tasks over to the Christian professionals, convinced that maybe we don't have enough time, or we maybe those professionals wouldn't bungle it up as much as we would, you know, just this week, one of our deacons and I were working to figure out uh, somebody to mow the lawn, all right? I wear lots of hats around here, and this deacon was helping me out, uh, and we knew that neither of us had the time. Both of us have full-time jobs to do, and it needs to be done, and so we called in the professionals, and this is really how our society works, doesn't it? I don't repair my own HVAC, right? The, some of us think, though, that the church should then operate this way, that some, if we can maybe just pay someone to preach the gospel for me and to take care of the church stuff. And maybe if we can just hire someone to mow the uh, spiritual lawn, then I at least know that it's taken care of and it's taken care of by a professional. But if the things that I just mentioned and that the whole Bible says about the church are true, 
then this has it actually fundamentally backwards. Jonathan Lehman puts it this way. Every member of a church should recognize it's my responsibility to protect the gospel. Jesus has given it to me. I would be foolish, in other words, as a pastor to fire you from that job, nor could I if I tried. But if members really are answerable to God for how they have protected the gospel and made disciples, then why in the world do we need pastors? Do we need them at all? And if so, what do we need them for? This is where I want to go today, and we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 20 to do this, where Paul wants to be enormously clear to pastors in the Ephesian church about what God expects of them. We're going to do so according to, with uh, answering three questions together. You ready? First is, what is a pastor? Maybe uh, it's just, again, because of my job as a pastor, but I find this passage in Acts chapter 20 to be enormously moving. The drama of it just really sweeps me up. I don't know about you. Paul is uh, gathered with this group of cl- uh, a close group of men, uh, leaders from one of the church that he, churches he's planted in Ephesus, and he calls these men elders. Now, the thing is, what we may not realize about these men is none of them have been Christians for more than five years. Just in half a decade, though, they've, they've seen not only that th- they became brothers in the faith, that God gave birth to a church, that together we, they saw an outpost for the way of Jesus born where there was none before. They have seen and endured much over even these five years, especially these last few where Paul had lived and served among them. Perhaps they were still telling stories to one another of the opposition that they had faced, all that they had gone through, or of Paul's lectures in the Hall of Tyrannus, or the revival that took place among the magicians of all people, and then finally the silversmith riots that had torn their city apart. Do you imagine they were intimidated when Paul approached them about leading this ragtag and infant church? They hadn't exactly been following Jesus for that long. None of them were that much of experts on it. But over the past three years, they at least had Paul to lean upon. Only now he has called them to this island to say goodbye. This man was not only the man who not only planted this church, but likely shared the gospel with these men in the first place, was leaving, going for all he knew to persecution and imprisonment. He suspected maybe even his own death, not likely ever to see these men again. In a day in which we are only a plane ride away from most people, it might be hard for us to understand sorrow like this. A final goodbye. Grown men with tears in their beards, sloppily embracing a man that they had known as their friend, as their brother as their pastor, now sending him off for what they suspected was the last time. It turned out it wouldn't be the last time he'd come back after being released. But Paul's speech is about far more than a goodbye. In fact, I was, as I was preparing for this sermon, I uh, saw um, online that another sermon had been preached on this passage, and the title of it was is How to Say Goodbye. That is not what this passage is about. It's about far more than that, friends, than how to say a good goodbye. Paul has asked them to make this two-day journey to pass the torch of ministry down, to entrust a church that he loved, that he bled and sweat for, to be in their hands, 
entrusting it into the hands of men that he had called elders to care for the church as he had and as Jesus himself would. This wouldn't be the first time that he had done something like this. In the New Testament, it tells us that as soon as the gospel began to uh, save people and as churches were, were then formed among those who had become Christians, the need for those churches to be led and, pre- and protected became enormously clear, especially in those days when so much fought against their integrity, let alone their survival. They needed someone who could protect this church, that could lead them as Christ would. And since Paul could hardly handle the task for these churches, Acts 14 tells us that Paul began to appoint leaders in his place. Actually, a a team of leaders, it would seem, called elders, a team of elders in each of these individual churches, in, in a good portion of them, if not all of them, of called and qualified men responsible to care for and to oversee the church, that the church might be equipped and emboldened for an unfinished mission, to care for the church as he had and as Jesus would. And we don't get a lot of details about how they then structured themselves or what their meetings looked like. What we do get, though, is the kind of role that Paul and God were asking them to play. Look at verses 18 and 19 with me. And again, I think there's such value in keeping God's word open and looking at these words. You don't need a TED Talk from heaven. You don't need my two cents. We need God's word. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you from the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. What is a pastor? A pastor first, according to the example of Paul himself, is a servant. Let me ask you, have You ever seen in uh, your workplace someone get really ugly over a job title? Someone who insists on uh, a uh, label that fits how necessary that they are to the company? For those of you who are office fans, it reminds me of when Michael Scott promotes Dwight from assistant to the regional manager to assistant regional manager. We can get ugly over titles, see them as part of our identity. Well, the thing is, when it comes to the under, understanding the role of a pastor, we actually can't begin with what authority they might have or what title that they possess. We must begin by saying, first and foremost, that a pastor is a servant. Every pastor is actually a man under authority. I don't mean a deacon board or executive committee necessarily. I mean the authority of God himself. A pastor is a servant of God, serving his will and his way. And so, serving as a pastor should actually be the last job to lead to a big head or an inflated ego. A pastor is serving the Lord, who the Bible calls the chief shepherd, the one, as Hebrews tells us, they will owe an account to for the souls that they have been entrusted to serve. This is not their church. The church is not the pastor's church, as verse 28 puts it. It is the church of God. Whether they face a mob of opposition or a stadium of applause, pastors stand before God as his servant. As Peter would put it in his letter, a pastor, like the members of a local church, 
like the members of that church that he serves, should all submit themselves under the mighty hand of God. This, the pastor, whoever he may be, is to, with John the Baptist, see Jesus become greater, even if it means that they themselves must become less. A pastor is a servant, but second, a pastor is a steward. So our kids, who are not here this, uh, today, uh, as some of you know, my son uh, broke his uh, foot, tripped uh, running through our house, and somehow just, he was just goofing off with his, bro- his uh, siblings, and I've never heard him scream like that. But he was fine afterwards while well, he took him to the doctor. Turns out he broke it. Poor kid has a cast up to here. So he's just dragging this thing around the house, can't put weight on it. Poor my poor kids, but that's for free, never mind. So nonetheless, my kids are not here today, I'm missing my family. But the, uh, uh, my wife, uh, who homeschools them, and she's unbelievable um, for the work that she does with our kids. Our kids have adjusted to homeschooling and largely really like it, but there's a day that they love most when it comes to homeschooling, and that's Tuesdays when they have community day, when they gather together with uh, other friends their own age to uh, learn some of the uh, principles that they'll be unpacking the rest of the week with their parents. Um, This year, though, Grace for Community Day was appointed treasurer of the nursery. I mean, she's, she's just kind of a big deal, let me just tell you. I told her she should get a nameplate, treasurer of the nursery. Now, what would happen if Grace and I decided to uh, keep some of the money that she's given for ourselves? After all, Grace is kind of a big deal. Not only would that be morally shady, I think some of us would say, but it misses the point of her position, doesn't it? She is a steward. She has been entrusted with the responsibility to serve her fellow moms by using the entrusted money for the purpose that it was trusted to her for. Look at verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers for, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The word overseer here, it's not a word we use very often. It, in fact, may, be, may have been Paul's preferred term for pastors. In the New Testament, we actually find three words that are used for pastors. Pastor is only one of them. Overseer and elder are the other two for the same position. What is it that Paul prefers overseer? He speaks of it in his letters. Because overseer means something like guardian. Pastors are not only servants of God, they are stewards entrusted to care for God's church as he would, to guard God's people as he would. Their call is not to form the church of their dreams or a cult around their personality. Their people that they have been entrusted are far too precious to be turned into a means to an end. After all, did you see the language in verse 28, which he obtained with his own blood? The church is a precious thing, in other words, and every member within it purchased to belong to God at infinite cost to God himself, the cost of his son's blood. As Peter puts it in 1 Peter 1, Christians were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Let me ask you, what higher price could possibly have been paid than the one that Christ himself has paid? Not so much to call out the worth of those who are within the church, but to instill them with worth, 
the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The pastor's job is to care for God's people again as God himself would, counting them as precious as God does himself. I have to tell you, that's a really intimidating task. Friends, you are precious to me. But even I, 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 I need to grow up as a pastor. If this really is the standard to see you as precious as Christ does. This verse leads, though, to a third role that a pastor would play and really gets very specific on how a pastor is to be a servant and a steward. Third, a pastor is a shepherd. Did you see the language of verse 28? It speaks of God's people as sheep. And the verb to care for the church actually means something more like to act like a shepherd to them. The image of a shepherd caring for sheep turns out to be all over the Bible. Uh, God is called our shepherd at various places. He's the shepherd that we need. In fact, the shepherd we will be delivered over to. It's used in the beginning of the Bible and at the end of the Bible. But God calls Moses and David his shepherds. He even rebukes uh, the leaders of Israel at a later point in Ezekiel for being poor shepherds, of feeding themselves rather than the flock, of actually devouring the flock and becoming wolves. Jesus himself then is referred to as the shepherd we needed, the great and good shepherd. After the church is born then, it is said that more shepherds still are to be given to them. In fact, the very word that we get pastor from means shepherd. The Bible uses, again, a few terms for this one role, elder, overseer, and pastor or shepherd. But why is it that pastor seems to be the one that we latch on to, the one that we most commonly use today? I think it's not coincidental. Why is the image of shepherd such a helpful metaphor? Well, it has to do with what a pastor does, which leads to our second question, what does a pastor do? If I was to ask you that question How would you answer, what is a pastor supposed to do? So many of you would, I suspect, mention a variety of different tasks. A pastor preaches, right? Although many of us would disagree about the kind of preaching a pastor should and shouldn't do. A pastor marries and buries, maybe. Maybe a pastor is responsible for counseling, having a big vision for the future, for managing all of the church business, at least for keeping people civil and entertained on a Sunday morning. I have had some who have joked with me too, well, you only work on Sundays after all, right? I fear many of us and many of our culture, they, we prefer, we've been taught to prefer by our culture, celebrities or scholars or CEOs. But what God says that we need are shepherds. Shepherds do four things. They know, they feed, they lead, and they protect. First, a pastor knows the sheep. If it is really true, according to the author of Hebrews, and man, this makes me shake in my boots, that pastors will give an account to God for the souls that are entrusted to them, then they probably have, should have some idea of who has been entrusted to them. In a day where it takes very little for people to go church shopping, it's more important than ever to know who actually belongs to a local church that a pastor serves. It's part of the reason why we've increasingly been making covenant membership a bigger deal here about being a member in a church. It's not a badge of honor again or access to some rewards program or discount 
on a monthly potluck. What this means is, again, to be a member in a church is a public commitment to follow Jesus with a group of people through thick and through thin. And you are not only serving when you commit as a member the people that you, the family that you're a part of, you're actually serving your pastor. You're making their job easier so that they know they've been given permission to help you follow Jesus, to have conversations with you, to encourage you, to build you up, to cheer you on. Sometimes to have, yes, corrective ones to help you stay true to the faith that was entrusted to you. Covenant membership helps pastors to be pastors. Pastors aren't just to know who their people are generally. They are to know them individually. As a team, pastor elders work together to get to know the individual members of their church personally. We'll get to, again, why this team model is so helpful to have pastors, uh, multiple pastors of a local church. One of the reasons is so that they can share the burden of regular contact and encouragement. In some churches, this involves delegating specific members to specific pastor elders for care, making sure that no one falls through the cracks. But the goal is the same, to know the sheep. Second, a pastor feeds the sheep. I wish I could spend our whole morning on this one, friends, but let's look again to verse 20 through 21. How I did not shrink from declaring to you, speaking again of Paul's example, declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Greeks and to Jews of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Pastors know that God's people need God's word like they need food. After what is, oh, what does Jesus say in the wilderness when he's tempted by Satan? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It sustains us. God's word corrects us. God's word rules us, including the pastor. It orients us, and it binds us together. And so perhaps the most significant task that a pastor has is to teach the word in public and in private, not merely teaching what seems to be most intriguing to them, or at least what is less likely to offend, but to teach the entirety of the Word of God. That may be in a pulpit, and often is, but often it's over the phone or over the dining room table exposing the meaning of God's Word to us, even if it disagrees with us. And it's only a matter of time before it does, friends. Whether or not, again, you are a Christian, you consider yourself one, it's only a matter of time before you find God's Word disagree with you, question, do pastors persist when it does, refusing to shrink back from anything that is profitable? And guess what? That's all of it. Addressing the questions, the hurts, the unbelief, and the sins of real people from the Bible as they're applying it first to themselves. Even when pastors are not doing the teaching, pastors are responsible for the teaching that takes place in the church, for overseeing it, ensuring that that teaching is faithful, reliable, consistent with God's word, providing a balanced diet of that word, and leading us all to grow as disciples of Jesus who make more disciples. Most importantly, 
at the center of their teaching. I could not emphasize this enough. At the center of what they are most excited about and passionate about is not the end times or debates about creation versus evolution. What they are most excited about is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the message they can't shut up about, the message they can never leave behind. And it's the message that Paul, again, repeats at several times in our passage here, what Paul summarizes as repentance toward God and of, our, of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the point, in fact, of the whole Bible, the gospel as the news that the restless can find rest, the broken can find peace, the unlovable can find love, the addicts can find freedom, the enemies can find God. Why? Because sinners have found forgiveness through the cross of Jesus Christ, through his perfect life and his substitutionary death upon that cross, and in being raised to life to give them life so they could walk in that life, bring glory to that God, and find him to be their all. This good news of the gospel is not just what brings us over the line from, from death to life. It is how we walk in life. The gospel is the message we can't ever give up on, and the pastor knows that you need more than ever before. It is the power to change your marriages. It is the power to overcome addiction. It is the power you need to change. It is this gospel message that pastors are consumed with, that they make a beeline to, that they cannot shut up about whether they're talking to a believer or someone who is a skeptic, who is not sure where they're at when it comes to Christ or openly disregards them because they understand there is no understanding the Bible, let alone knowing God apart from the gospel. Third, a pastor leads the sheep. In high school... I was a cross-country runner. Um, I, it was about all I could do. I was not coordinated enough to handle a ball, so just point me on a trail and I'll be fine. Okay, so I, was, I ran cross-country, and if I can just be honest, I didn't tell my coaches this, I hated every single minute of it. Anybody else just hate running? Okay, so I, I hated it. I did it mostly because I um, wanted to make... Uh, friends there because I was attracted to some girls who were on the team and because I um, wanted to stay in shape. So this, but nonetheless, I, 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 after was done, promised I would never run for fun again. Again, seriously, who likes running? Some of my friends say that they do. I think they're lying or something is deeply wrong with them. You know, one thing on my mind, every 5K that we would do, every race that we would have, the end to finish the course. When will it finally be over? Notice verse 24, I do not count my life or of any, any value nor as precious to myself if only I might, I might finish the course and the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel, hear that again, the gospel of the grace of God. Paul sees his ministry much like a runner sees his course. He was called to preach the gospel and to lead others to walk in step with it. Every goal Every plan that a pastor may have falls in submission to this one, even if it would cost them their life. Nothing is as precious as what they have received from Christ to pass on. And so when pastors set the vision, mission, purpose, and policies of a church, they do not do so primarily with reference to business theory. They do so in light of the course that God has set uniting the church to serve his will and his opinion until finally they finish their course too. And like Paul, they don't just lead with their words, they lead with their example, calling others to follow their character 
their family life and ministry as they follow Christ, not pretending perfection, but chasing Him and calling others to do the same. Fourth, a pastor protects the sheep. Notice how many verses that Paul devotes to this one when he talks about wolves. Sounds rather dramatic, doesn't it? I've said before that the church, again, previously is a precious thing. Could not be more precious in God's sight. But it is also an enormously vulnerable thing. Paul says the church will soon face face enemies, not just from outside of their body, outside of their family, but within their own body. He says that some will emerge from among them, wolves who want to tear this body limb from limb. This certainly can happen in something as ugly as false teaching, and every generation is going to have some version of it. Some of them are more public. Some of the, some, again, some mistaken assumptions, some distracting assumptions are just universally accepted among Christians, twisted things spoken of which seem to be true, and a pastor's job is to point these things out and to call back the truth, to the truth, to be very specific about the lies of the times. But so often wolves wear sheep's clothing. Their tactics look more like gossip, infighting, distracting debates, who little by little draw others away from the gospel and walking in step with it. I was talking to a leader this week, and we were humbled again by a quote that comes from D.A. Carson. Uh, Your students don't care about what you assume. They care about what you're passionate about, and that's what they will reproduce. In other words, if it is not the gospel of Jesus Christ, if that's what you take as assumption, but you're really passionate about something else, those who you disciple, those who you teach the faith to, guess what they're not even assuming anymore? The gospel. Guess what they will be passionate about? Whatever that side aspect is. What a dangerous thing. And a humbling thing. Again, a vulnerable church requires a persistent pastor. Pastor elders are to be alert for the wolves from without and within to protect the church, refusing to run like some hired hand unless like, and instead, like Jesus, their, their job is to defend this vulnerable thing, addressing those who mislead and pleading with those who stray, laying down their lives for that church if necessary. I have to tell you, this is one of the hardest jobs for a pastor. Um, Caleb, I believe your dad has put it this way, ministry is a series of hard conversations. I think it's one of the greatest reasons for having more than one pastor to bear the load. Perhaps one of the reasons that Paul established these teams as a consistent pattern. Not only does it protect against burnout, but when, burden is, when the burden is shared and wisdom is uh, gathered around the table, it is less likely that conflict will be avoided or harmful influences will go unnoticed. As a servant, a steward, and a shepherd, a pastor or pastors know, feed, lead, and protect their sheep. Which leads to the final question, what kind of pastors do we need? Let's consider Bayless for a moment. Again, I know I'm still, in many ways, the new guy here. I've been here for just over two years as your pastor, and what a privilege it, ha- it is and continues to be. I would be so grateful if you buried me someday. Hopefully it's later rather than sooner. Uh, some of you know that, uh, that have been members of our church for very long. Um, long, and some of you have been 
members longer than I've been alive, let's just be honest. You've seen a variety of pastors and leadership structures over the years. In fact, in the 25 years prior to you asking me to serve now in this role, our church had six pastors and four interims. As grateful as I am for the faithfulness of each one of these men, every time a pastoral transition happens, it can feel like the church is forced to reinvent itself, right? To restructure itself, to rediscover a new vision and direction. If you do that ten times, the more transitions you experience, the more it can seem like church structure is simply a matter of personal preference. But God wants more for you than this. As I've mentioned before, I have no secret sauce to sprinkle on the church, no secret strategy to lead us forward into the future. My job is to be a shepherd for you, like many have shepherded you in the past, equipping you for the work that God has entrusted you to do without firing or replacing you in the process, and to do so according to God's word. So many of you know, and many of you know, if you were at our last members' meeting, our interest in this topic today has, is far more than what kind of expectations you should have of me as a lead pastor here. Although I really would ask you, and I, in fact, plead with you, please, I need you to pray for me. I need God's help to obey him in these ways. Compromise is so easy. I, just like you, am only five minutes from ruining my life. It's the vigilance that sometimes it requires. I need your help. I need your prayer to be this kind of shepherd. You are too precious and too vulnerable to mislead. But our purpose today is even more than that, as is the consistent example in the New Testament, including at the church of Ephesus. We are looking at adding more pastor elders to serve beside me. Now, as goes with many pastor elder teams, pastor elders are not all paid. Again, in the New Testament, it seems that there's a distinction between some who are paid more sacrificially by the church and those who are not, who perhaps even serve volunteer as ours will, including the two that we consider um, adding in. These pastor elders together will serve to know, feed, lead, and protect this church and to do so in ways that one man simply cannot do on his own. Over the past two years, we have been praying for such called and qualified men to shoulder the burden of shepherding God's church with me. And I'm grateful to say that in four weeks, we will be presenting Larry Babb and John Christensen for our members to consider voting in. As many of you know, both of these men, both Larry and John, have been faithful members at Bayless, faithful deacons at Bayless, faithful teachers at Bayless, faithful shepherds at Bayless for over two and a half decades. And over the past Six months, we have been studying the role of an elder together, giving both of them an out should they feel that they were not able, willing, or qualified to do so. And I can say I am, both, I am fully confident in both of them for this role. In fact, it is upon their counsel and their care that I have leaned over these years. However, you need to know eldership is not a popularity contest. We are a elder-led, deacon-served, member-affirmed church. I need, I need to know from you, I need God's help and the Spirit's work among you to confirm this, to see what I, if what I suspect is genuine. I trust how God works through his church, and I could be wrong. It could be that either or both of these men need to con- continue to serve in the roles that they are, and that God will provide other men to serve in the future in this way. 
or it's just not the right time. And so I want to give us three criteria by which we should consider these men to summarize what we've already addressed in Acts chapter 20. Criteria we not only find in this passage, but throughout the Bible. What kind of pastors we, do we need? We need first pastors who pay careful attention to themselves, as Paul puts it. Second, who pay careful attention to the church. And third, they pay careful attention to the gospel. As you consider these men or any that we would put forward as candidates for eldership, would you say that they're above reproach? Not that they pretend perfection, but do they set an example for other believers in humility, integrity, and in their family life? They may not have special education, but are they diligent students of God's word? Can you trust their counsel and, te- and teaching will be dependent on that word? Do you trust these men to know, feed, lead, and protect you in your walk with Christ? Have you already experienced them doing so? Do you suspect that they are doing so out of a desire for positions or for acclaim or for the kind of selfish gain that Paul points out in verses 33 through 35? Or do you trust that they are doing so out of genuine love for Jesus and for his church? And the gospel is the gospel, the message they can't seem to get enough of. Can you tell that they are clearly applying the good news of Jesus to themselves as they apply it to others? After all, as Paul says in verse 32, the message that a pastor needs is the same message that a member needs, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only this message can build the church up in breadth and in depth. Only this message can produce the kind of men who are faithful enough to lead it. And to help you in this decision, I want to give you a summary of what we've been doing as a church. Again, for six months, I have been exploring eldership with these two men. At our last members' meeting, we summarized the role of elder, the role of pastor, what the Bible makes clear about it, answering many of the frequently asked questions like many have had, is this even Baptist? Where do we find men like these? What we, we, uh, what, what's, the, what's the benefits of bringing on a team And if you missed that members' meeting, we actually have a packet as you leave, a printed-off packet for you to take. I would encourage you to take it, read it, make sure that we're not inventing stuff. And second, on Sunday, September 27th, in two weeks, I will be moderating a time of Q&A with our leaders, with our elder candidates, for those seeking clarity concerning their calling and qualifications, as well as their theological convictions. I encourage you to join us, and if you have questions that you would like me to address, please do reach out to me over email. Third, I want you to commit to regularly pray and consider fasting for the next four weeks in order to discern God's will as you consider affirming these elder candidates. If you have any questions or concerns about this vote, whether it's about the candidates, either of them, or about eldership generally speaking, please don't go gossip about it at lunch. Come talk to me. Come talk to me. And fourth, Join us after service on October the 11th as we vote on these two elder candidates to consider their immediate installation. Regardless of the outcome, I have to tell you, I am so excited to see what God is doing in our church and the ways that he is preparing us as many members in one body to be active in his mission. May he raise up the right shepherds for us to do so. Would you pray with me? Lord, you are the one who has to raise up the right shepherds, and we know that you are the standard for the 
for them, Lord. And so would we not ever be rash? Would we be ever faithful? Would we, would we seek a kind of structure here that would, that would produce a Jesus-led church, not a celebrity-led one? And Lord, would you show off in power as this church is more um, fully equipped for the task that you've entrusted us to do, to make disciples of Jesus Christ for his glory and the joy of all. It's for Jesus' sake, the good shepherd that we pray. Amen.